Hello and welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. My name is Maruf Ahmed and I'm the co-founder of Quit Genius, the world's leading digital clinic for substance addictions. I'm going to be speaking to inspiring individuals about their journey to addiction recovery. Recovery should be celebrated and the goal of Mission Recovery is to break down the stigma surrounding addictions and to empower others to live addiction-free lives. This is Mission Recovery. Hello and welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Cameron Yarbrough. Cameron is the co-founder and CEO of Torch, which is the leading platform for digital learning and leadership development. Cameron, welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, and just before we jump into things, how, how are you? I'm doing well, Marif. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's an honor to be here with you of all people. I, I know how much work you've done personally and professionally for this movement around addiction. So it's, a, it's an honor to be here and I'm, I'm, I'm moved uh, by the invitation. Thank you so much, Cameron, and thanks thanks for being on here. It's always an absolute pleasure to speak to you, and uh, always seeing you puts a smile on my face, so I really, really appreciate it. So, Cameron, uh, for the listeners that don't know about Torch, um, give us your elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. Torch is a professional development company. We started out as a coaching company for, for businesses to allow employees to have the same benefit of executive coaching that we've seen historically at the senior tier uh, of the organization. So we saw this opportunity to pair employees at any level of the organization with executive coaches so that they can get that same uh, powerful benefit that we typically have seen with senior folks. That was the original mission of Torch, but we've, we've evolved quite a bit. Now, what is getting a lot of traction for us is our leadership development platform. So we have a software platform that allows businesses to configure digital learning experiences with live human beings in the form of coaches and mentors to drive better outcomes for their employees. So it's really a combination of software and human beings to drive leadership growth. That's what Torch is today. Amazing. How do I invest, Cameron? I'm sold. I joke, I joke. But no, in all seriousness, uh, at Quit Genius, we, we actually use Torch and we're, we're long-term customers at, at Torch and uh, the service is amazing and I couldn't recommend it any higher. And uh, this isn't a paid ad, I, I promise. And Cameron hasn't paid me to say that. Um, but it's actually through Torch and, and Y Combinator that we met, was it three years ago now, Cameron, right? It was three years ago. I remember our first conversation in the big hall uh, down down on the peninsula, and uh, just very quickly that first very that very first conversation, I thought to myself, "These are a couple of founders who are really going to make it." And you know, you just have that kind of personality, Maroof, that people want to hang out with you. And if you're an American listening to your your very posh English accent. You're too kind, but no, Cameron, I actually, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. I actually remember that. And it's like fate brought us together three years ago. That's right. At the first, first YC dinner, I ended up out of all the seats sitting next to you yeah. and we got chatting and it's the start of a, I think a beautiful friendship now. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been amazing since then. And I guess um, one of the interesting things I wanted to touch on Cameron was your, your past and, 
and your, uh, I guess, experience before Torch. So um, like I mentioned at the beginning, before Torch, you were actually an experienced and well-renowned executive coach. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about that experience? Well, even before that, I was a psychotherapist and I originally started out with a psychotherapy practice in San Francisco. And it just so happened that because of geography, many of my, many of my clients worked in tech and it, and as my, my practice evolved, uh, my, my caseload started to take the shape of, of more and more startup founders and I just loved working with startup founders so much that I realized that this is what I wanted to spend more time. This is the population that I want to spend more time with. And mm -hmm. so executive coaching was this nat natural evolution. It got me out of the treatment room and into the boardroom, if you will, and it allowed me to just draw on all of my training as a therapist, but then integrate my experience in my past experience in business into one and and serve the the founder population so really i got my start working with founders within the yc ecosystem that's that's how i got got started yeah and you you managed to uh, uh, work with some of the biggest names in the industry so talk to me a little bit about how how it was to you know help some of the most successful people in the world it was humbling frankly you know it was exhilarating to work with founders because you know i they would you know come into my office kind of early in their careers and maybe they had raised some angel money or they had raised the seed round they were just getting started but then we would stay together and i would watch these these young men and women just have miraculous success and build these tremendous companies and mm. one of the things that really stuck out to me is they all thought in terms of scale and very large impact. And that's like the unique differentiator of particularly a YC founder is that these are people who really think in terms of scale and impacting the whole world. And when you spend time with someone like that and you watch them have success and you watch them make these changes that do affect the world, it's very exhilarating and exciting. Cameron, I've known you for over three years now, and this is testament to how humble you are, but you've never mentioned that you've, you've owned and you're, you're a co-founder and the chairman of a behavioral health clinic focused on modernizing mental health. And I only just found this out very recently, just before this call. So you have to talk to me a little bit about, I guess, how that all came about and uh, I guess how, how rewarding that experience has been since, um, since launching. Yeah. So after after I got my master's uh, and and became licensed, I founded uh, Well Clinic. I should say co-founded Well Clinic, and I was the original uh, founding CEO of the business. And I just saw this opportunity to 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 really bring a mo a more modern kind of approach to the world of mental health. It was at the time that I was getting started, I would say it was still a bit old school in a certain way. And so I saw this opportunity to, to modernize the mental health uh, uh, field within San Francisco. And so I invested in nice modern offices that I thought would be comfortable to people. Ultimately, what I saw as the opportunity is mental health suffered from the stigma. It was sort of like, if you go and you see a therapist, there's something wrong with you, right? As mm -hmm. opposed to this idea of if I go to ther if I go to therapy, it means that there's something right with me. 
So we built a culture and a clinic setting around that concept that mental health is something positive that you, that people who go to a therapist are doing it to invest and strengthen themselves and set themselves up for better relationships and better careers and so on. So we built this modern uh, mental health um, company around that thesis and it worked. It worked really well. We were able to attract top therapists and psychologists and, and MDs throughout San Francisco. Uh, you know, I think today we have almost 50 clinicians and, you know, serve, you know, a, a tremendous number of patients in the Bay Area. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting what you, you said there about the, the stigma associated with mental health and addiction and mental health have a ton of different parallels. And it still falls under that umbrella. And, um, you know, it's it, unfortunately get, getting over that barrier to that, that first step to go and seek treatment is often one of the biggest hurdles that face folks that suffer from, you know, mental health issues or, or addiction. So, um, yeah, huge congratulations to, to yourself and the team for all, all the hard work that you've been done, doing there and also all, all, the, all, all the folks and, and, and patients that you've been treating. Thank you. Yes, it's, it's been meaningful work for me. One thing I, I wanted to touch on, because obviously, as you know, one of the focuses of of this uh, uh, podcast is around uh, addiction. Um, and here at Quit Genius, one of our biggest missions is to focus on getting uh, and empowering folks to to get to better versions of themselves and live addiction free lives. Um, I really commend you, Cameron, because you've been very vocal about the fact that you know addiction has been very close to home for you from the time of your father, and then later on in your life, and um, if if you wouldn't mind, Cameron, would you mind telling me a little bit more about the, your experience and uh, and particularly your father's experience with with addiction growing up? Yes, thanks for asking, Maru. If I I haven't told this story publicly, so this is the first time for me. So I am, but I do feel that I'm ready, and I appreciate you asking. So my father was my original inspiration to become an entrepreneur. You know, he was a successful oil and gas executive himself. And although I never had in, any interest in being in the oil and gas business myself, I, I, I always respected his, his business acumen. And I saw how much he loved the world of business and, and being an entrepreneur himself. And so I was very much inspired by him. And when I was a young, when I was a boy, he, it, he was very, very successful. Um, we grew up, you know, in an, you know, I, I grew up uh, as a privileged young man, in an upper middle class environment, thanks to his success. But, but even when, even from the time I was 12 years old, I think that that was when I really started recognizing that my dad had a real problem. The, the thing that was on the surface was, was his alcohol consumption. You know, he would come home, you know, every day around six o'clock or six 30 and, he would be either a little bit drunk or a lot drunk. And I remember going to him when I was 12 years old, my own individual, you know, boyhood intervention with my father and telling him that I wanted him to stop drinking. And he just point blank told me that he didn't have a problem and that I was wrong. And that was a that was a terrifying and hard thing to do as a 12-year-old boy. Mm. And even in in, in profoundly unvalidating 
uh, for a 12 year old to be told by your father that, that he doesn't have a problem, even though when you, you know, in your little childhood self that they do. Mm. And so that was the first big moment, but my father's story is a really pretty sad one. And, but I think one that is probably very true for a lot of people when he was, when he was in middle school, no, he was in high school himself. He was a, he was a star running back and he had a a catastrophic leg break and he was put into the hospital and back then they put people in body casts if if it was a really bad break Mm. so my father at 14 was in the hospital in a body cast and at the and they prescribed him morphine for his pain and some his friends came to visit him and he was using the he was using the morphine for the physical pain, but then it was summer break, and his friends would then leave leave the room, and he felt lonely. And then he realized that he had this button that just served up morphine on the ready, and that was the first time that he also realized that he could use morphine to mask his emotional pain. And so that was the very beginning of his addiction at 14 and it was started with painkillers. And so then after he got out of the, out of the hospital, he was never able to play football again, but he had discovered painkillers and that's when he started drinking. And really that was the pivotal moment that informed the rest of his life. And, and I, and growing up, I remember him doing Percocet and, so he was doing, you know, Percocet and Demerol. This is all before Oxycontin. He didn't discover Oxycontin until much later in my life. By the time he was really pretty far gone on Percocet, and it, but it, my whole life and my relationship with him was this very painful kind of long, slow downward ramp in which I would, you know, call my father to celebrate. Hey, like. I remember like I got into UC Berkeley. I didn't end up going to UC Berkeley, but I was very proud of the fact that I got into UC Berkeley. And I called my father because I wanted to tell him that I got into UC Berkeley and how proud I how proud I was at the time. And he was really drunk and he was also on pills. And that, you know, that experience of being, you know, you know, a 20-year-old and wanting to just call your father and have them shower you with praise was something that was uh, something that I really lacked growing up um, through these very, very pivotal moments. Like I never got to tell my father that, you know, I was, had, you know, started uh, that my mental health company was successful. I never got to tell him that I got into YC. I never got to tell him that, you know, I raised my first round, like all of these things that a child wants to be able to tell their father. They're not able to do that because the father, your father dies long before they actually die when they're an addict. And that is the most horrific thing that, that a parent can possibly do to their children. Honestly, Cameron, thank you so much for the candidness and the transparency there. And genuinely, so, so sorry to to hear about that. And it almost like highlights how big this problem is, the the, the opioid crisis, as it's called. It's, it's frightening. And hearing stories like your father's um, just highlights the fact that, you know, something major needs to 
be be done about this, right? Um, folks are being prescribed opioids at the age of fourteen, and that's that's too young. Um, and unfortunately, they're they're on that slippery slope. And to a certain extent, there's a there's a fault of the of the industry there. And I, I was curious, actually, um, Cameron, because obviously this your father uh, being uh, addicted to alcohol uh, from when you were very very young what 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 impact do you think that had on on you growing up and 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 you now as a person there's some ways that it's been very negative and then some ways that it's been very positive and so you know the negative things are kind of obvious it's the heartbreak of not having a parent be able to be a stabilizing force and to celebrate your your childhood wins or even your adult uh, wins you know not having the a parent available to be there for you in those big moments but also uh you know having a parent that's not able to be a a role model or an example i learned very early on that i couldn't model my life after my father which is which is painful right because Mm -hmm. as a child you you naturally are looking to your parents as the model for who you're going to be in the world and so it's a bit devastating for a child to realize like oh that's the example of what I can't be in my life. Because if I do that, I will fail. My relationships will fail and my professional life will fail. So that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the hard part. I think that the, the silver lining is that, it, is that I did choose, choose ultimately to go and, and, and dive into a psychology program. And I was able to turn that experience into something very uh, profound. I was able to take all of the pain and, and the, the suffering that I had been through with my father around his addiction and use that, use that as an opportunity to discover myself and to chart my own course, to see my own blind spots. And I think it made me a much stronger person. And it is, it is the reason why I think that I'm a very good father to my, to my five-year-old and my three-year-old. And sadly, it's, it's, not, it's not because of my father. It's in spite of my father that I'm a really good parent. And, and so these are the ways that you can kind of turn crisis into opportunity if you let it. Absolutely. And, and Cameron, you of all people have achieved so much and we've only touched on and scratched the surface on some of what you've achieved. And um, uh, yeah, I commend you for that because it's, it's absolutely, uh, I guess, uh, amazing what you have achieved um, throughout, the, throughout that time. And um, one thing uh, maybe wanted to touch on, if it's okay, Cameron, is you mentioned earlier on when you spoke to your dad, he, he didn't realize that he had a problem. Um, did at any point during his life, he, he realized that, you know, the addiction was a problem and did he ever try to do anything about it? Yeah. So when I was in my, when I was in my early thirties, my, my father actually went to prison, which is a really odd thing to say because he was a, a, a white collar, you know, wealthy hmm. businessman. And in spite of all of all of his you know professional strength and his successes he had really like awful like he had an awful personal life like all of his relationships fell apart and he ended up going to prison and i'll spare you the reason why but suffice to say he was in jail and he was in jail long enough uh, uh to have to get really sober and you know he did all the right things like 
he was um, he became a teacher while he was in jail. He became a support to other people. He got into AA while he was in jail, and he started becoming a he went through the steps and he became a sponsor and so on, all in prison. And and then you know when he came out, there was a period of time where he was where he was really on the mend, and he was you know working the steps and and on this positive trajectory. And that was the time that I got very hopeful, like, oh, finally, you know, my dad is going to be, is going to stay sober. I'm going to have the father I want. And I'll be able to finally have that, you know, that professional like role model that I've always wanted as well. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't stay sober. But so, but during, during that time, he would tell me about his problems. And that's when I learned about all these stories about about how his 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 addiction to painkillers, like where it started and how it progressed, and how many pills he was taking, the different kinds of pills, he confessed all of that stuff to me while he was in jail in letters, and and then subsequently after after he got out of jail, and so I got all of this detail, and then once he went back to using, that door just shut, and it was just it was like a vault again. It was at he tried to pretend like he never even said those things, but I'm really glad for the fact that he did go to jail because that was the only time that I had uh, a sober father for an enduring period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it almost highlights the fact that, you know, with the right support and the right therapy, things things can be done. Uh, but we, we like to think, and we always say this, that addiction is actually a chronic disease. Um, it's not something that, you know, can be treated in a couple months. Folks need that long-term support. And, uh, you know, someone like your father who had intensive support and some support with the AA and following the steps, then going to almost having virtually no support at all. It's so hard to continue to to stay sober uh, and you know to continue to um, or, or forego or, or not relapse so that's why i think it's really important to continue that like long-term treatment and and have solutions to offer those long-term treatments and particularly with painkillers marif you know if it were just alcoholism i actually think that my dad would have kicked it i think he would have kicked it if it was just alcohol but you know, his go-to thing was Percocets and Grey Goose. Mm. And if it was just the Grey Goose, I think he would have been able to get, get out of it. But I think with the painkillers, the grip that they had on him was so incredibly tight that even with the therapy and with and with the the 12 steps it was it was really really hard he needed more tools he really needed to he needed a more sophisticated treatment system because that's how that's how pain how difficult it is to get out from a painkiller addiction yeah absolutely it's it's one of the hardest addiction one of the most addictive drugs so that's why it's one of the world's biggest problems, right? That needs to be solved and really needs some some action. And um, Cameron, uh, I think one thing that I noticed and I, I saw uh, is that you tweeted recently that you've been one year alcohol free. Uh, so yeah. first of all, congratulations on on that. Uh, that's a, an amazing feat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> Yeah, if it's okay with you, Cameron, I, I wanted to start um, maybe at the beginning of your journey with alcohol, uh, and if you could maybe talk about your your first interactions with with alcohol um, and how it all really started. So interestingly, 
I've never been a big drinker and I've actually never even been a big user of, of any kinds of drugs, but it has been, I think way more on my radar that these are very, very addictive and dangerous substances more than they are for most people. And so for me, like I've, I've never blacked out. I've never had a DUI. I've like, you know, I've never, you know, it's, it's, I've always been a moderate alcohol user but I think that even being a moderate, moderate user of alcohol is a lot more dangerous than people realize. Mm-hmm. And so what I've, what, I've, what I've done throughout you know, my life is do these like very long periods of abstinence. And you know, maybe this time, like maybe I won't ever drink again. I don't know. But, and I think actually when it comes to abstaining from alcohol or drugs, I actually don't even think it's skillful to make a declaration like I'm never going to drink another drop again. And even in, in 12 steps, they actually advise you not to say that because it's got to be a day by day experience. And so I, even though I'm, I'm, I, I'm not in 12 steps, I used to teach the curriculum as a psychotherapist because I, I had clients who, who were in the program. And so it's too much to think I'm never going to do this again. It's a day by day experience and mm. a day by day commitment, right? I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm not going to drink for another year. What I'm going to tell you right now is I'm not going to drink today, right? Probably not going to drink this week. And that's the way that I live my life. And I have to tolerate a certain amount of increased anxiety because you know there are moments that being a founder gets get extremely stressful, as you mm. know. Right. And I would like to have a glass of wine. And when I, when I choose not to have a glass of wine, then I have to tolerate that there's a net increase in anxiety in my body. And what do I do with that anxiety? That is the moment that we have choice. Am I going to go for a walk? Am I going to go for a bike ride? Am I going to go meditate? Am I going to go and have a sit down with my wife? Am I going to go and play with my son or my daughter? These are the kinds of of thing, things that I try to do to rechannel my anxiety into positive things. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty successful at it, right? If you sublimate your anxiety into things like work or parenting and all that kind of stuff, you process it, you process and metabolize that anxiety through these other healthy activities in life. No, that's really interesting. And um, it's interesting that that balancing act that you mentioned between like, I guess, the anxiety and the the, the drink, and then also these periods of abstinence that you've mentioned, the, the 12 months of abstinence and things like that. I guess, what impact do you think those periods of abstinence have on you? And how do they, I guess, benefit you? So in a lot of ways, one is it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's empowering, right? Uh, even like leading up to when I had made that decision a year ago, it was like I said, it wasn't that I was coming off of some bender. It wasn't like I was I was coming off of a long period of being like terrified or afraid or and I wasn't going into AA. It was just like, you know, what would it be like to to not drink alcohol for a while? That might feel really good. And maybe it'll affect my sleep. It did affect my sleep, by the way. My sleep um did uh did markedly improve. And then after I did it for a month, it felt really empowering. And then I did it for another month and it felt even more empowering. And then I got this clarity that I really love, right? So there's the sleep, there's the clarity of mind, there's just the emotional 
kind of boost that I get from feeling good about myself uh, for rising to this challenge, right? And so it's, it just feels good. Uh, so Cameron, you've also you, you mentioned the anxiety and some of the the benefits that that alcohol can offer. There, I guess, like, is there anything that you miss about alcohol uh, over your periods of abstinence? So of course, so you know, it's I I love wine, right? That's that's I'm not a hard alcohol uh, person, but I like red wine and I like white wine, and I love pairing a great wine with dinner. Uh, mm. My wife and I both cook. We cook almost every single day and I love a wine pairing. Right. And so I do miss, there are a few moments when I sit down with my, my wife and she's made a beautiful dinner and she has a glass of Chardonnay and I don't, right. There's a little bit of a, of a loss there. Right. Yeah. Uh, there'll also be moments of celebration and, and it's really important to celebrate um, wins in life. And we've trained ourselves to celebrate our wins with alcohol, right? And and so I've had to kind of relearn how to celebrate wins without it. And but mm. uh, but are there moments when I when I miss it? Yes, I do. I, I guess approaching these like periods of abstinence, Cameron. How do you go about it? Do you mentally prepare yourself? Do you do you do anything internally to to I guess like uh, ensure you're ready for these things? So the. I, I do prepare myself. So I, I, I will journal about it. I'll build a spreadsheet and, and set out my goals. And then initially this time I used an app called Streaks. I think it was okay. called Streaks. Yeah. And that was helpful, at least initially, to, to make that, to make the change. And, and so that, that's what's helpful for me is I will, I'll write it down. I'll set the goal. And then I'll I'll use some and use an app to get started. I'd love to uh, use Quit Genius. You need to you need to get me set up for um, for alcohol abstinence on your on your app. And I, I look forward to that next phone call when you're going to walk me through your product. Absolutely, absolutely. you've got you've got lifetime access free of charge, Cameron. Uh, okay, good, good. So I I I do like to use modern tools, and these are the huge advancements that I think have really, uh, that these are the big advancements when it comes to managing addiction that are exist today that didn't exist for my father. Mm -hmm. Right. And I am a huge believer in the fact that we need to embrace these modern tools for the longest time we had one tool and it was called AA or the 12 steps. And that was it. Okay. That was it. But we have a lot, we have new tools thanks to technology. And I really think that it's important for people to embrace every single tool at their disposal to manage addiction. So I'm a believer in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The, the benefits that technology can offer instead of, you know, only being able to access your therapist, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday, you can literally have a therapist in your pocket that you can speak to whenever and wherever you need it. Like when you're having that craving on a, on a Saturday night, uh, and you know, you're, you're, you're having dinner with your, your wife, you can go and then speak to your therapist. So there's so much benefits that that technology can offer especially in this realm so I, i'd echo that but i'm also very biased yeah of course <laughs> um well, one thing I, I mentioned before but want to delve into a little bit more detail uh into cameron is that you're very vocal on the fact that you've now been sober for for, for 12 months you're very vocal um about the the fact that you know unfortunately your father suffered from 
a life of addiction and it didn't end the right way. Um, do you mind just walking me through, Cameron, why why you believe it's necessary to be vocal about it, to tweet about it and let the world know about that? Yeah, so it it is, look, it's a hard thing to share. It, does it feel vulnerable? Yes. Do I like sharing with the world that you know, my my father died at 63 years old of a heart attack induced by um, some kind of a bender, uh, a drug and alcohol bender, on a very very lonely night. And I don't like having to share that with the world, but I think that it's really important that I do because I think that there's a lot of other stories out there, other founders, other 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 professionals of all kinds all over the world who suffer from these kinds of, of stories and that and if we're if we're afraid to tell them then a people feel ashamed and they think that they're unusual when in fact they're not unusual mm. right so that's the first thing is just to try to de-shame it a little bit so that other people feel compelled to tell their stories but I think this is the big one. I think that when we're ashamed of something, we're, t- we're compelled to try to keep it into the shadows of our mind. We lock it away into a dark vault of our mind and we pretend like it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And to the extent that we turn away from a truth like that, we can't actually integrate the learning from it and grow and evolve as human beings. Mm-hmm. So for me, part of being open about my family and my history coming from a, a, a family that struggles with severe addiction is to bring it out of the shadows and into an open conversation, partly for my own personal growth, but also in hopes that other people will feel compelled to do the same. That's why I'm, I'm open about telling my story. Yeah. And, and Cameron, uh, I commend you for this so much because having leading figures like yourself talking about this is, is exactly what we need. Because like you said, there's a big stigma associated with it. People think it's not normal. People are shamed to admit um, that, you know, they suffer from an addiction and especially substance addiction. So I think, you know, recovery and coming out the other side and overcoming addiction is something that should be celebrated, not, you know, hidden and, and, and locked in the vault, like you said. That's right. And, you know, it's, it, it is, it will forever be my truth that my children have to grow up never meeting my father. Mm. My, my daughter asks me about who my daddy is all the time. And and she's five now. And so she's old enough to understand that my, my, my father died. And then there's going to be a moment when I'm going to have to explain how he died. And the same thing when my son comes of age as well. And I just hope that other people out there don't have to ever explain to their children, you know, how their grandfather died and why they will never meet them. And it's an, it's an unfortunate reality that we, that we live in. You're completely right, Cameron, and uh, I know I know you now. Uh, I've known you now for three years, and what I do know is that you're an incredible father to to uh, your your children, an incredible husband. Um, I think even when that time does come, uh, I'm sure you'll be there as that uh, supporting father, that that shoulder to lean on for your kids, because you've done it across their whole lives, and uh, I aspire to be half the half the father that you are. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Marufa. I'm, I have no doubt that you are going to be a tremendous role model for your little 
your child if you, yeah. if you don't already have one on the way no 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 i don't i don't a long time to come for that i'm still <laughs> i'm still young Cameron. i'm still young right, a long time right. um but and and just i guess finally uh any advice that you have for, for folks that are struggling with addiction um whether it's opioid addiction alcohol addiction or even tobacco addiction what advice do you have for them my main advice is this is get out in front of it really early and that's why even though i'm not a, a big drinker i'm not a big drug addict i think that it's i think for those folks who are really heavy drinkers really heavy addicts yes you've got to get into therapy and you've got to start working the steps and you've got to embrace modern technology that could go into rehab that's all true and there's still hope and i've seen a lot of people come out of those that kind of depth okay so if someone is like that like far into it like there is still hope okay but i also want to send a message to people who aren't that far along and that is that the longer that you wait the lo- the harder it becomes to manage it later mm. and i know this from watching my father if i would have been if we would have been able to get to him you know when he was in his 20s his chances of getting sober would have been much much higher or even managing it through you know through through abstinence or through you know through therapy etc i think he could have managed it but because it went so long it's it's that's what makes it so dangerous so my message is to is to get honest about your addiction now if you are a daily drinker i don't care if it's one glass of wine that's an addiction it may not be a catastrophic addiction, but it could turn into an, a catastrophic addiction if you let it. Get out in front of it really early. Be honest with yourself. Start managing it, whether it's through whether it's through abstinence or whether it's through periods of uh, periods of abstinence, uh, whether it's through uh, technology, whether it's through meditation. Pay attention to it, and. If you do that and you get to it early enough, you may be able to manage it earlier on. I always will say that I'll I'll say I'll add this is that alcohol in particular is is a privilege. It's not a right. If you do not manage your alcohol intake, that privilege will be taken away from you. If it's not taken away by you, it will be taken away by the universe it'll be taken away by law enforcement it'll be taken away by um you know by by death there are other ways that the that life will manage your addiction for you if you don't manage it yourself don't let that happen recognize that something like alcohol is a privilege and if you don't manage it then it then you will lose that privilege wow that is profound Cameron and uh, I could not have said that better myself in in the in the sense that folks often leave it way too late they end up in rehab they they end up in intensive outpatient treatments because they don't realize it's a problem and they take too long to seek that treatment so treating it early realizing it early and realizing it's a privilege is 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 some of the best advice uh, so thank you so much for for sharing that Cameron and Cameron 
Thank you so much for for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate the openness, the transparency, the candidness that that you you went through sharing your, your the journey of your father and also your journey as well. So I'm very, very grateful um, that you were able to spend this this time with me. So thank you once again, Cameron. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to share, Maruf. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about Quick Genius on quickgenius.com and the podcast on missionrecoverypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed our content, I'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and consider leaving us a review. Thank you. Thank you.